Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to Behind the Knife, Medical Student and Intern Survival Guide. In this podcast series, we focus on high-yield topics relevant to medical students and surgical interns. My name is Patrick Georgioff. And I'm Vahag Nikolian. And we are your hosts. Today's episode is another one geared towards incoming interns. That's right. Today's episode is part two of common and critical floor issues. From the mundane to the hardcore emergencies, we're going to cover it all. All right. We hope we found the last episode useful. We're going to pick up right where we left off. Again, it's important to point out that for all of these cases, there could be different workup strategies, diagnoses, and treatment plans, all of which may be completely reasonable. What we're going for here is big picture, high yield teaching points that will stick. As such, topics are not covered in a comprehensive fashion, and in most scenarios, the patients would require additional workup, treatment, and follow-up for their specific issue. That's absolutely correct. And this also bears repeating. Never forget to call for help. As an intern, especially in July, you are never alone. As a brand new intern, call early and call often. All right. Before we get to the cases, let's step back for a moment and pretend. Pretend you respond to an urgent page. You walk into a patient's room. You get the story. You, you examine them. And unfortunately, after doing so, you have no clue what to do. You draw a blank, and you don't know where to go from bum, here. Bum, bum. It happens. It happens, definitely. I've been there before. Exactly. And what we want you all to avoid in this is this awful feeling by suggesting a menu of high-yield tests that you can order in scenarios like this. A la carte. A la this is a menu. A menu of high-yield tests. So that's right. So when you need more information, you can order any variety of this test menu so you can help get a grip on what's going on. Uh, these tests are particularly important in critical situations that involve an unstable patient. So you walk in the room, you're actually scared. You say, this person does not look good. And especially in those patients with cardiac or pulmonary problems. Right. So without further ado, high yield tests you can order include the CBC, a BMP, troponins, an ABG or a VBG, a point of care glucose, an EKG, and a chest x-ray. All right. So next time you walk into a patient's room and they look ill and you do not know what's going back, going on, you got some tests to fall back on. You can start by ordering the CBC, BMP, TROPE, ABG or VBG, point of care glucose, EKG, and chest x-rays. Go ahead. You don't know what's going on. Order them all. Get some information back and they'll start narrowing your diagnosis and offering you some treatment strategies. Awesome. All right. So let's do some cases. Patrick, again, for all of these scenarios, you are the intern on call. It's July. <clears throat> it's midnight. <clears throat> and it's all quiet until you get that page. Uh-huh. It, this is regarding a 58-year-old man with coronary artery disease and COPD who is now two-day status post-Whipple procedure for pancreatic cancer. The nurse states that he has new-onset altered mental status. And he would like you to come evaluate the patient. All right. So you're starting with a good one here, V. Altered mental status is tough because the differential diagnosis is huge. It's super broad. And so for instances like this, um, I at least personally like to address it by systems. And so when I'm strolling over this, not strolling, but walking quickly to this patient's room, I'm going to start thinking about the differential diagnosis by system. So for example, neuro, could it be a stroke, a seizure, delirium, dementia, or medications, including narcotics? Cardiac, 
Is it heart failure? Is it MI? Is it an arrhythmia? From a pulmonary standpoint, could this be hypoxic or hypercarbic respiratory failure? Or maybe even a PE? GI, is it abdominal sepsis, GU, UTI, et cetera, et cetera. All right, so I'm thinking about all these things. V, I get to the room, what do I, what do I find on exam? So on exam, you find a somnolent patient who has increased work of breathing and is mildly hypoxic. Okay, I will start by increasing the oxygen, and then I'm going to utilize all of those high-yield tests that we mentioned. Uh, again, I don't know what's going on here. I think this patient doesn't look good. So I'm going to order a CBC, a BMP, a troponin, an ABG or a VBG, a point of care glucose, EKG, and a chest x-ray. In this case, I'm also want to know how much, if any, uh, narcotic or benzodiazepines has this patient been taking. All right. So the labs are unremarkable. Your EKG is normal. And the chest x-ray shows COPD changes, but nothing acute. Your ABG shows a pH of 7.1, PCO2 of 88, O2 of 72, a bicarb of 16, and a lactate of 1.6. And when you ask the nurse, he has not taken any significant amount of narcotics or benzos. Uh-huh. So this patient has hypercarbic respiratory failure, likely from a COPD flare uh, uh, made worse by this, this recent surgery. Okay, so how are you going to approach this patient's problem? Yeah, in addition to calling my senior and ICU fellow, I would make plans to rapidly intubate this patient. A PCO2 of 88 with an altered mental status is simply too high to try non-invasive ventilation strategies. Totally agree. So making the decision to intubate someone is a difficult one. However, delaying intubation can be deadly. So if you're thinking about intubating the patient, just go ahead and you should probably go ahead and do it. Very rarely do you regret intubating one, except uh, when you don't and then you're really wondering if you should have done it earlier. That's right. That's absolutely right. If you're thinking about it, do it. Um, I also want to point out in this case the importance of getting a blood gas in a situation like this. A blood gas gives you so much valuable information, and it's extremely helpful to guide your next steps. I would say it's the most important test you can get. You also don't necessarily have to have an ABG. A VBG is often just as good. While oxygen levels don't correlate, the pH level is usually very close, and on average, the venous PCO2 is five points higher than the ABG. In regards to the COPD flare, management also includes albuterol and ipratropium nebulizers, IV steroids, antibiotics, and careful ventilatory management. All right, so let's have another iteration of the same case. Again, it's a 58-year-old man with coronary artery disease, COPD, who is now two-day status post-Whipple for a pancreatic cancer with altered mental status. This time, on exam, you find a somnolent patient with decreased respiratory rate who's mildly hypoxic. Yeah, the key to this one you said, V, is decreased respiratory rate. Um, I'm particularly concerned about narcotic overdose because of the somnolence plus a decreased respiratory rate. And and I would take a close look at his pupils. What do they look like? Yeah, they're pinpoint. Yeah, and he's probably received a bunch of narcotics? Yep, a pretty hefty dose of IV morphine. No other sedating meds have been given, though. Okay, so I'd like to get a baseline ABG or VBG and administer 0.4 milligrams of IV Narcan. Okay, you do so, and the patient wakes up, and unfortunately, he's kind of pissed off and cursing your name. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, at least he's alive, right? Agreed. Um, we should point out that the half-life of many narcotics are longer than Narcan, so you may need to redose it for the patient. That's a good point. Okay, great. Uh, on to the next case. The nurse pages you at 1 a.m. and tells you that her patient can't sleep and that they would like to have a sleep aid. Ah, <laughs> these are bad pages, too. 
Um, so in this case, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, obviously, the patient wants to sleep, and you would like them to sleep, uh, but the post-surgical crowd is often heavily medicated with sedating medications, including narcotics. So because uh, of this, um, tossing in a sleeper for the patient may just not be safe. That's right. I would say by far and away, the best way to deal with this is just go talk to the patient directly, hear what their concerns are, and then explain to them why you don't feel comfortable prescribing a sleep aid if they are taking narcotics or other sedating medications. In my experience, about 80 or 90% of the time, patients are okay not getting anything once you tell them why. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Vlog. This is a great example of when things can be easily fixed by simply going to the patient's room, talking to them, understanding their concerns, and communicating clearly with them. Now, another common scenario that is sorted out when you go actually see the patient is that uh, the patient never actually requested that sleeping aid. It's that was actually the nurse. And so once you uh, see the patient, that can be cleared up as well. You don't have to prescribe anything. Totally. Okay, so sleep aids may actually be indicated in some patients. And so what can you give these patients? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you have a couple of relatively safe options, including tratazodone, which is a sedating antidepressant, Benadryl, a sedating antihistamine, and melatonin agonists. Like you said, these are relatively safe, but they still do have to be used with some caution. You should never use a benzo for sleep, and the use of non-benzo benzoreceptor agonists like Zolpidem or Ambien is controversial as these types of medications may have adverse effects as well. Yeah, that's right. If you are a new intern, uh, I would say that if you're a new intern and you want to give something, just start with melatonin. That's a super safe bet. And vitamin M, baby. Yeah. Okay, so let's go on to a new case. Uh, this is a 72-year-old female who is status post VATS wedge resection two days ago. You get a page from the nurse saying that the patient is confused. Okay. How does she look uh, when I examine her? She's confused. Uh, she's talking nonsense and trying to climb out of bed. Uh, she's otherwise looks okay. Her vital signs are fine. On exam, her lungs are clear. Okay. Uh, so just uh, uh, quickly here, this sounds like delirium. Um, does she have a history of delirium or dementia? She does not. Okay. So delirium is an acute confusional state characterized by an alteration of consciousness with the reduced ability to maintain attention. Now, delirium, unlike dementia, is a reversible condition. And really, once you've seen it a couple times, uh, it's really much more easy to recognize. Absolutely. So it's important to recognize the difference between delirium and dementia, which is defined by a decline in cognition involving one or more cognitive domains like memory or executive function. Unfortunately, dementia is not reversible. All right, that's an important point, V. Delirium is common in post-operative patients, especially older patients. Now, before you are comfortable attributing the delirium to recent anesthesia, to lack of sleep, or a new environment, you need to be sure that there's nothing causing the change of behavior. For example, you should rule out hypoxia, cardiac dysfunction, hypoglycemia, and infections like pneumonia or UTIs. Once you've ruled out these issues, you can use simple management strategies to address the patient's delirium. Right. That includes orienting the patient, keeping normal uh, day and night schedules, providing cognitive and physical stimulation during the daytime, ensuring the patient has their glasses and hearing aids, and avoiding delirium-inducing drugs like benzos and anticholinergics. Additionally, the presence of family can also be very helpful and reassuring for patients as well. Yeah, one thing to throw in there too, don't forget about alcohol withdrawal. Uh, this can certainly cause delirium and, and other bad things, and so um, uh, do keep an eye out for that. 
Uh, but Hog, what happens to this patient after we go and see him and chat with him? All right, so after talking to him for a bit, a little reorienting, she's able to actually go back to sleep. Good, good. So most patients can be managed without medications. Uh, if the delirium persists and or is associated with agitation, you can consider treating with an atypical antipsychotic agent like uh, quetiapine, uh, also known as Seroquel, or olanzapine, also known as Zyprexa. Uh, these are most useful when given uh, before bedtime. All right, so you're walking back to your call room and you notice some commotion down the hall. Uh-oh. Yep, and unfortunately, it's from one of your patient's rooms. <laughs> you walk in and you see four nurses holding down a oh, 78-year-old no. man who is one day out from a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Apparently, he just swung at and connected with a nurse. Earlier in the night, he was yelling and screaming but was redirectable, and now he's become quite physical. So what do you want to do now? <laughs> Yikes. Um so first, I need to ensure my safety, the safety of the staff, and the patient's safety. Uh, is it a dangerous situation right now, Bahad? It's not, but the man is being held down. Okay. So in this case, I'd want to... And I'm sorry, Pat, but he just <laughs> kicked the nurse. All right. So we're going to call this a dangerous situation now. So in scenarios like this, uh, where you need to rapidly calm a patient down, you can give one to two milligrams of IV or IM lorazepam every five minutes until calm, or five to 10 milligrams of IV or IM halperidol uh, every 15 minutes until calm. Now, both work well, but Ativan, uh, aka lorazepam, has a more rapid and noticeable effect. That's true. Many pe- uh, people don't know that Ativan pe- can be given IM. Uh, you should also consider the cause of the patient's agitation. If it's entirely undifferentiated or due to drug or alcohol withdrawal, lorazepam is your be- best choice. If it's due to delirium or a psychiatric issue, then haloperidol may be better. Uh, what about restraints? When are you using those? Yeah, another tough late-night intern question. Uh, many hospitals are implementing aggressive policies to minimize restraint use. Uh, but in this situation, that doesn't apply. This patient is, danger, uh, is dangerous to himself and to others, and for that reason, restraints are indicated. I agree. So in this case, you would use four-point restraints. You should also document and make sure to document in these scenarios uh, why you're using the restraints. Agreed. All right, so last case. Uh, This is regarding an otherwise healthy 58-year-old man who's three days out from a laparoscopic hemicolectomy for colon cancer. He's been doing well, but is now nauseous and vomiting. Okay. Um, How does he actually look when I see him? You see him, and he looks uncomfortable. He's holding a pink bucket and throwing up. His vital signs are unremarkable except for sinus tachycardia. His abdomen is diffusely distended tympanic and uh, non-tender to palpation. A recent set of labs that were drawn a few hours ago were unremarkable. Okay, remind me, he's post-op day three, right? Yep. Yeah, has he passed any gas or had any bowel movements in surgery? He has not. Okay, so this sounds like an ileus. I would start by ordering an abdominal x-ray, specifically an acute abdominal series. Okay, and so when you're ordering that, what are you looking for? Yeah, a few things. First, I'm looking for free air. Uh, This would suggest a perforation or leak, both of which could cause an ileus. Although, if there was a perforation or a leak, I would expect other signs and symptoms uh, that uh, are not present in this patient. It's probably also important to note that a small amount of free air following open and laparoscopic surgery is expected and can take up to three to six days to fully resorb. Second, I would assess the degree of dilation of the stomach, small bowel, and large bowel. And third, I would look for signs of obstruction, including air fluid levels 
and the absence of gas in the distal colon and rectum. Yeah, um, that's right. But we should also note that it's difficult to definitively diagnose an obstruction on plain x-rays. As such, if you're concerned about that, you should go ahead and consider ordering a CT scan. Okay. All right. But in this case, ileus uh, is probably more common than more likely diagnosis uh, as we are only three days out from surgery. Yep. So the x-ray shows a dilated stomach and a diffusely dilated small bowel uh, with air fluid levels. I'm sorry, without air fluid levels. No air fluid levels. Okay. So diffusely dilated small bowel loops without air fluid levels. Uh, This is suggestive of an ileus. Okay. So how are you going to treat a patient with an ileus? Yeah. uh, Unfortunately, the best treatment for postoperative ileus is time. Um, A typical postoperative ileus lasts from uh, three to five days, but can last much longer. In the meantime, you can support the patient by ensuring that they stay hydrated, uh, by supplementing electrolytes as needed, especially potassium and magnesium, and by making the patient MPO or placing them on a clear liquid diet. And what about NG tubes? When are you using them? Yeah, good question. Uh, Most patients with a bowel obstruction should have an NG tube placed, uh, whereas the use of NG tubes in patients with an ileus is mostly patient and provider specific. Um, NG tubes can be placed to improve the patient's comfort, to minimize recurrent vomiting, and also to serve as a means to monitor the progress or resolution of an ileus. All right, that's right. So for the most part, you will be inserting an NG tube in a patient with an ileus to help improve their comfort. What about nausea? What what meds are you giving for uh, post-operative nausea? Yeah, uh, there's a a whole bunch of different options, and a good go-to anti-nausea medication is Odansetron, uh, also known as Zofran. This is a selective 5-HT3 receptor antagonist, which blocks serotonin. Uh, You can give it as a pill, a sublingual tab, or IV, and the IV dose is 4 to 8 milligrams every 6 to 8 hours. Um, Other options include Prochlorperazine, also known as Compazine, or Promethazine, also known as Phenergan. Now, of note, uh, these anti-emetic agents may cause some QT prolongation, and so it's important to keep an eye out for that. Great work, Pat. Uh, That concludes our common and critical floor issue mini-series. We hope you found it useful. Let's finish off with some rapid-fire review. Let's do it. I'm not going to ask you to spell any of the names of the meds that we just had. (laughs) All right. That was tough. All right. First question. What high-yield tests can you order for a sick patient, especially when you are not sure what's going on? Ah, yes. The menu of tests. Uh, Useful for when you do not know what's going on. This includes a CBC, a BMP, troponin, ABG or VBG, point-of-care glucose, EKG, and a chest x-ray. All right. Second question. What is the initial dose of Narcan for for a patient who's received too much narcotic? 0.4 milligrams IV, and it's important to note that the half-life of Narcan is shorter than many narcotics, so you may need to redose it. All right, number three, what is the average CO2 difference between arterial and venous blood gases? All right, the average PCO2 difference is five millimeters of mercury higher in venous blood gas compared to arterial. Okay, number four, if you want to prescribe a sleep aid, what's your safest option? Melatonin. Vitamin M. And number five, what's your, what is the best pharmacologic treatment for a dangerous agitated patient? Uh, one to two milligrams of IV or IM lorazepam. Alternatively, you could also use Halperidol as well. All right, nice work, Patrick. And for all the new interns out there, remember, when in doubt, go ahead and call your chief. Perfect. Until next time, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.